Ronald Clark O'Brien and his family, wife Danine, children eight-year-old Timothy and five-year-old Elizabeth, resided in the middle-class Houston neighborhood of Deer Park, Texas. Ronald was an optician that worked at Texas State Optical, and he was heavily involved in the church, singing in the church choir, overseeing the local bus program, while even serving as a deacon at the Second Baptist Church. Ronald was a role model to those who knew him, even being described as a good Christian man and an above average father. But in actuality, they had the entire story twisted on Ronald. Ronald was a man who had a hard time keeping a job. And over the course of a decade, he was employed in 21 different companies and would be fired for various reasons, including negligence and fraudulent behavior. And in the fall of 1974, Ronald, who was then 30 years old, was on the verge of being dismissed again due to suspicions of stealing money at his optician job. But with the low salary that he was making, he was definitely motivated to get back at his employers and take what he thought was his. His weekly take-home pay of $150 was barely enough to cover food and rent. And it was later learned that he owed more than $100,000. And in today's dollars, that would amount to over $600,000. So, of course, the motivation to steal was high for Ronald. Having defaulted on several payments for the many bank loans that he had, his car was on the verge of being repossessed. And with no hope to recover from the hellacious financial situations that he found himself in, Ronald devised a twisted scheme that would solve his money problems and allow him to enjoy a rather comfortable lifestyle. It would be on October 31st, 1974, Halloween Day, where he would carry out his twisted plan. The evening of Halloween, October 31st, 1974, was just like any other Halloween. Ronald had never been one to get into the Halloween spirit, so I guess the only thing different about this year was that Ronald could not wait to take his kids out for a night of trick-or-treating. The Bates family, who are family friends, would host dinner for the family on that dark evening. And after dinner, Ronald and his two children would group up with family friend Jim Bates and his children, Mark and Kim, to go on a trick-or-treating adventure. While the husbands went trick-or-treating, the wives, Jean Bates and Daneen O'Brien, stayed at the house to hand out candy. And after just a few houses between two neighborhoods, the children knocked on a door whose owner had apparently forgotten to switch on the porch light. At least that's what the children hoped had happened. Not sure why they chose this particular house, 
Perhaps it had Halloween decor, but no porch light on. But whatever it had, it drew them in enough to wait for someone to come to the door. But unfortunately, the group grew impatient, and Jim herded the kids down the street. But Ronald, he he was pretty optimistic, and he stayed behind, just in case someone would show up at the door. Not too long after, Ronald came back to the group with five enormous pixie sticks candies, declaring that the neighbors who hadn't answered the door were actually home and were just being slow to respond. However, unbeknownst to the group, the pixie sticks were hidden up Ronald's coat sleeves the entire time. It began to rain soon after, so Ronald decided that he would wait until they got back to the house to give the kids the delicious pixie sticks treats. Even giving the fifth one to a nearby child, 11-year-old Whitney Park, who was trick-or-treating with the family from Ronald's church. In the late hours of Halloween night, the O'Briens returned home. Ronald got the kids ready for bed while his wife, Danine, went to see an old friend. And before retiring for the night, he allowed Timothy and Elizabeth to have one treat each. And although he encouraged the kids to take the delighted pixie sticks that he waited at the door for, Elizabeth declined and opted for something else. But for little Timothy, Ronald was persistent in making the choice for his candy selection. According to the narrative, Tim would reach into his Halloween bucket for a sucker. But his father Ronald would respond, No, you don't have time to eat a sucker, before suggesting the pixie stick instead. Tim would attempt to open the pixie stick, but for some reason, the powdered substance would not come out of the tube. Ronald would roll the plastic tube between his palms to loosen the powder before pouring it into his son's mouth. Expecting a pleasant taste of powdered candy, Tim complained about the pixie stick's bitter flavor so Ronald decided to pour him a glass of Kool-Aid to try to obscure the bitter taste. But soon after, Timothy would complain that his stomach was hurting and would run off to the bathroom where he would have excruciating cramps. He would throw up and then he would begin twitching and foaming at the lips. And Tim would pass out in his dad's arms as his father rushed him to the hospital. But sadly, less than an hour after consuming the tainted pixie stick candy, Timothy would pass away on the way to the hospital. When Timothy's body was taken to the morgue, the medical examiner claimed to have smelled the scent of almonds inside of his mouth a common symptom of cyanide poisoning. According to the autopsy reports, 
Timothy had taken in enough potassium cyanide to kill two or three adult males. Before any of the other kids could indulge in these treats, police officers thankfully retrieved the remaining candy and discovered that whoever had tempered with the pixie sticks had used staples to sell them. One nightmarish case involved one child who fell asleep with one of the unopened pixie stick treats in his hand. Apparently, he was unable to remove the staples from the straw. After being tested in a laboratory, it was discovered that the top two inches of each straw contained a lethal dosage of cyanide. There was no hope for Timothy, who had double the fatal quantity in his body. The potassium cyanide had drained the oxygen from his cells in about 30 minutes, causing his heart to stop beating and subsequently his brain. After Halloween night, Ronald was asked to trace the group's route by investigators so that Ronald could show the police the house where he got the tainted pixie sticks. The police would drive Ronald around, but for some reason, despite only having trick-or-treated on two streets, Ronald could not remember exactly where they went or the house or even the street where the contaminated candy was handed out. Ronald was essentially playing dumb. And Ronald claimed that he didn't even know what the person looked like as they only emerged out of the door that was slightly ajar, only remembering a hairy arm protruding from the door, handing him the pixie sticks. A few days would go by and investigators who were frustrated with Ronald decided to take him out again to recall his steps. And this time, the strategy proved successful as Ronald's memory was awakened. The residence Ronald would identify belonged to Courtney Melvin and officers were quick to locate Courtney, even going to his workplace, William Hobby P. Airport in Houston and arrested him there, embarrassing him in front of all of his co-workers. However, the man had a good alibi. He was, as it turned out, working that night, and over 200 eyewitnesses could confirm that he was at work and not at home. His wife and children who were home had ran out of candy earlier than expected and decided to turn in early. The man's timesheets also confirmed that he was at work, thus taking him out as a suspect in the case. Had Ronald simply pointed out the wrong house? Or was it just his luck that he picked a house with a man who wasn't home, whom he could pin his twisted Halloween plan on. Had Ronald suggested a home where a man with a hairy arm actually had no alibi, 
I wonder if he would have gotten off with the crime. However, the police didn't just look into a man with a hairy arm at the door. The police began to suspect that something was off about Ronald. Police felt that Ronald was the real perpetrator due to his changing statements, apparent deception, and lack of empathy regarding his son's tragic death. Eventually, inquiries would reveal that Ronald had purchased $10,000 worth of life insurance policies on both Timothy and Elizabeth earlier the same year. And on October 3rd, 1974, unbeknownst to his wife, Ronald took out two further identical $20,000 life insurance policies on his children. And it was only the morning after his son's death that Ronald called the insurance company to inquire about the payoff. Ronald's ultimate objective was to poison Timothy and Elizabeth to collect the proceeds from their life insurance policies and relieve his financial burdens. Investigators obtained a search warrant and searched the O'Brien residence where they discovered a pocket knife with candy residue, which they believe may have been used to taint the candy. During the course of their investigation, the police learned that Ronald had asked a community college professor what is more lethal, cyanide or another type of poison? The police investigated further and found out that Ronald had also contacted multiple chemical businesses to inquire as to where cyanide was for sale. And in mockery, how much would be needed to kill a person? Another witness, an employee at a Houston chemical firm, told police that a man had came in to buy cyanide, but he fled when he was told that the minimum purchase was five pounds. The store clerk claimed that he didn't recognize Ronald, but he did recall that the man was dressed like a doctor and wearing a beige or blue smock. Now, Ronald worked as an optometrist Therefore, that's what he would wear to work every day, so it seemed to check out. And although Ronald acted the part of a distraught father and insisted on his innocence, he was arrested and charged with his son Timothy's murder on November 5th, 1974, only five days after Timothy's death. Ronald pleaded not guilty, and his defense team suggested that an unknown villain was responsible for poisoning the children's candy on Halloween. A jury found Ronald, whom the media had dubbed the Candyman, guilty of one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder on June 3, 1975 after only 46 minutes of deliberation. The decision to put Ronald to death via electric chair was made only one hour later. Ronald's wife would file for divorce not long after he was found guilty, to no surprise, 
and Ronald was scorned by his fellow death row inmates who held him responsible for the murder of his own child. Ronald spent nearly eight years appealing his conviction. And on October 31st, 1982, just eight years after he murdered his son, Judge Michael McSpaden set Ronald's final execution date and offered to drive him to the death chamber himself. On March 31st, 1984, it was Ronald's final day to live. Ronald was scheduled for his execution after three prior reschedulings. No further reprise from the death penalty would be allowed at this time. And fortunately for Ronald, and at the time Ronald was spared the electric chair when Texas switched to lethal injection as its method of execution in 1977. The fatal injection would be administered to Ronald, and sources state that the medicine started acting within 30 seconds. And eight minutes later, the Candyman was declared dead. The time of Ronald's death was 12.48, just after midnight. And roughly 300 people gathered outside the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville on the night of Ronald's execution. They would yell, trick or treat, and threw candy at protesters holding signs against the death sentence. Most speculate that Ronald planned his act in part because of the persistent but unproven reports about strangers committing deadly Halloween pranks on youngsters. The poisoning of Timothy was neither random nor anonymous, yet the resulting publicity only served to reinforce parents' worst fears about stranger danger and the risky act of receiving treats from strangers. The police quantified the panic in the days following Timothy O'Brien's murder with massive piles of candy at their police station after offering local residents who had candy that they were suspicious of a place to discard. The local police had enough candy to fill an entire room. Years would go by and trick-or-treating would be an act condemned among locals as a result of the tragedy. Both before and after the Deer Park incident, reports of questionable treats being distributed around Halloween would emerge every year. And this was just the icing on the cake. However, there was little evidence to support this urban legend revolving around poisoned candy. Whether they contain broken glass, razor blades, or are genuinely ecstasy pills. In 2000, a guy in Minneapolis was accused of hiding needles in the snicker bars that he gave out to trick-or-treaters. However, the only victim was a teenager who had nibbled on the candy and felt a prick of the needle. Thankfully, he was okay. 
Since Timothy O'Brien, there has not been another case of a child dying from eating poisoned Halloween candy. So I hope you all have a safe trick-or-treating evening tonight. As this episode is being released on Halloween, October 31st, 2023. Thanks for listening and please be safe tonight. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at the Scarecast for more content. And if you have any scary stories that you want to share, send it to Mike at the Scarecast.com. As always, be safe out there. And until next time.